Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It doesn't take a theologian to see that evil is uh, running rampant in our world. However you want to define that, however you see it, uh, it is no, uh, it's, it's no stretch of our imagination or our minds to see that the evil one is at work in this world. It's disturbing to us, it burdens us, it frustrates us. And the question that we keep coming back to is, what is God doing about it? Where is God in the midst of this? What, is, what is actions is God taking? And there is something of that very question and that very idea that I think is inherent in this whole story of Esther that we've been reading over the course of this summer. And you see it culminating in these last few chapters that we read selected verses of to be able to read four chapters in one setting. And there's something in this story that speaks to us about God's presence and God's response to the evil in our world. I think it starts, I think our understanding has to start where our story does today as Haman and, the, and King Xerxes come to the second banquet that Esther invites them to. The day before, she's invited them to a, the banquet, and when the king says, what do you want? She says, I'll tell you tomorrow. Let's come back and do this again. I don't know if that's part of a, a plan that she has to sort of build up the anticipation of the king to respond positively to her, or if on that first banquet, she just chickens out. If it were me, it'd probably be the chickening out. That would be the, probably what would cause that. But whatever the case, God uses whatever ha what happens here. I find it fascinating that the king's question to her is, Esther, what do you want? He's anxious. He wants to know, what is this about? It must be something big. And then he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom if that's what you want. It intrigues me that people, that, that often people who are, whose very existence is completely wrapped up in this world can only see things from a temporal perspective. All the king can think about is Esther must want something material. And I'll give her up to half the kingdom. That's all his mind can focus on because that's the only lens through which he sees all the world. Everything is about gaining more power, gaining more wealth, getting more of all the things that are, that, are, that are at the center of the temporal world in which we live. And maybe that's the reason why the Scripture keeps telling us that our minds need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit so that we look not at the temporal as the end, but we look at the temporal from the perspective of the eternal. The temporal world is important. God created this world. He put us in this world. We are a part of this world. It's a vital part of our existence. But, our, but we will never see God at work in the midst of it if our focus is purely on the temporal. Only it's, but only when we see the temporal from the perspective of the eternal. Because what Esther wants is no, she doesn't want any possessions. She doesn't want power. She wants her people rescued. 
She wants evil, the plans of the evil one defeated. I think that having that that eternal perspective changes so much about how we look at this story with the various questions and issues that may be arising in our mind as we read through it. That means that Haman is not just a person who does some evil things. Haman is actually, the narrator seems to be telling us this, that Haman is in many ways the archetype of evil in the world. He is the agent of the evil one in this world. And his purpose and his goal is not just to eliminate a particular people that he doesn't like or a particular person who offends him. It is to wipe wipe off the face of the earth the witness of God that God has put here so that people would know his ultimate plan of redemption and restoration of all of his creation. That's why the writer, that's why Esther says on a couple of occasions here in chapter 8, you see it earlier in chapter 3, he refers to Haman as Haman the Agagite. And as we talked back when we were looking at chapter 3, that using the term Agagite seems to connect Haman to King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, who seemingly their very existence was to eliminate Israel, to be a tool of the evil one, to wipe God's witness off the earth. And so here here is Haman trying to do that again. I think there is something that we, I think that we often are probably underestimate the amount of hatred that the evil one has for everything God loves. All of God's creation, all of God's creatures, everything about it, the evil one is, hates and he will do anything to destroy it that's why I keep coming back to to the image in Lord of the Rings that you see in if you watch the movies what the the image imagery of Mordor and and all the destruction it is just scorched earth that's the mindset of the evil one and that's what he wants to do to us. His venom toward us is far greater than any of us could ever imagine. Jesus, Jesus alludes to this at the, as he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room. And in Luke 22, he says, he says to them, he says, Simon Peter, the, the evil one, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And he means all of them. And the message says that he wants to separate you from me. That's his goal, to separate you from me. And that's why Peter writes in his epistle that Satan is like a roaring lion roaming the earth looking for anyone, anything that he can devour. I think we underestimate the evil one's desire to destroy us. I think we also overestimate our ability against him. I think we overestimate how how much power we have to defeat the evil one on our own. You see that in Peter. Right after Jesus says that to the disciples about how Satan wants to separate them, sift them like wheat and separate them from him. He says, one of you, you're all going to leave me. And Peter stands up and says, I don't know about these guys, but Jesus, I will defeat Satan to the end of my life. He doesn't got me. It's only a few hours later that Peter denies even knowing Jesus, much less being a follower of Jesus. 
Evil is real. And it's present. And evil is at work. And his purpose is to try and eliminate God's witness and to destroy every person. And that puts into a different kind of context when Paul writes in Romans, quoting the Old Testament, saying that, quoting God's, God's word, of, when he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What he's really saying is, God is really saying, I will take care of evil. The problem we have with that statement and, and words like vengeance in, in, the, in reference to God is that we think of our own vengeance, and our vengeance is always revenge. Our vengeance is, comes out of, of being offended or angry or, or hurt by someone, and we want to strike back at them, and it's a very emotional kind of response. That's our problem is because we see vengeance from our limited sinful perspective, but that's not God's. Elaine Bernias says that when you think about God's, God's vengeance, it's really, really we're talking about God's righteous justice. And she says God's justice is really the result that comes out of his strength and his power to accomplish his purposes of defeating evil and addressing it, but also out of his goodness, out of a heart of love and grace that we struggle with. Well, let's be honest. Do we really want to worship a God who is callous and apathetic about evil? I mean, do we really want to worship a God who looks at, at all that the evil one does and says, well, you know, how bad can it be? I don't want to do anything that might upset people. God cares deeply about justice, and God works for justice. And we may not always see it in the immediate, but God is working. And God knows how to do that in a way that you and I do not. But God also, I'm convinced, God grieves sometimes the things that his justice has to do and the things that come out of that. I think God grieves all of the deaths that are recorded here. You know, there are there are about a thousand deaths that take place in the city of Susa. And the author says that there are 75,000 deaths that take place all, all the other places. And there are scholars debate whether that number is, is hyperbole or real. But either way, there's a lot of people who end up dying in this. And I think all of those deaths grieve God. And what we have to understand is that these deaths take place not because of what God does, but because of evil. It's Haman's plot that starts all of this. It's Haman's plot to destroy the, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews all around the world. That's his plan. That's his plot. That's what initiates this. God doesn't initiate this. And there's a big difference between Haman's edict and Mordecai's. Haman's edict is wipe everybody, all the Jews, off the face of the earth, every single one of them, completely. Mordecai's edict is as slaves who have no right to defend yourselves, you can now defend yourselves. And we may still have issues with that, but you can see the difference. You can see the difference between responding to what other people do and initiating it. 
And I think that difference is important. I think that, that, that we have to see that perspective in a way that maybe in our 21st century mindset is a little bit difficult to see sometimes. I think that, that we have to remember as well that I find it fascinating that when that Xerxes is, is, seems to be more upset about the fact that Haman falls on the couch on top of Esther than he is about the fact that Esther and all of her people are going to be annihilated. That's what seems to ignite his deepest anger. And, 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 and it says, the author tells us that, that once Mordecai is impaled on the pole, or Haman's impaled on the pole that was intended for Mordecai, he says, now the king's anger, his fury subsided. It seems to me that maybe Xerxes isn't the model we ought to follow. That gaining revenge, seeing our enemies suffer, that brings a relief to our anger. It ought to grieve us that that has to happen. It ought to grieve us that, that, that these things need to take place, that there are still thousands of people who, who are so blind to the greatness of who God is that they go ahead and attack anyway. Because the common response of people to opposition in our world is almost always some form of violence. It might be the violence of actions. It might be the violence of words. It might be the violence of our attitudes. But the most common human response to opposition is some form of violence. But ultimately, God's response to opposition is the cross. God's response to, to opposition, his ultimate response is to take all of the violence of the world upon himself and to give his life. And there's something of our calling in that. I think it's important also to realize that in the 5th century of the ancient world, these are Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah. We in the 21st century are no longer waiting. The Messiah has come. Jesus has come. He has revealed to us the full nature of God. God's ultimate goal and purpose and the nature of who he is is now fully revealed in Jesus Christ. In a way that the Jews in the 5th century didn't quite understand in the same way. And that's why in the Old Testament, in the in the Pentateuch, when, when God looks around and gives them the laws and he says, in most of the other nations of the world, if someone puts out your eye, you kill them. If someone knocks out a tooth, you take their life. And God says to them, the best, the most you can do is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's not really where I ultimately want to bring you. That's just as far as you can go at this point. But ultimately, Jesus comes and says, now I tell you when you're hit on one cheek, turn the other cheek. When you're persecuted, pray for your enemies. And Paul writes, don't return evil for evil, but return good when you're faced with evil. It's a very different kind of mindset because ultimately because of the cross, our most powerful weapon is not some form of violence. It's compassion and love and truth 
and humility and righteousness. And it doesn't mean that we aren't opposed to evil. It doesn't mean that we do everything we can to, to keep evil at bay and to defeat that. But if we do it from a mindset of violence, then our goal is to just crush other people. If we do it from a mindset of the heart of Christ and of love, our goal is to try to bring people into the kingdom. And to have God change their whole mindset so that they can experience the love and the grace of Christ as we have. You see, ultimately this becomes about witness. It becomes about the kind of image bearers we are of God in this world. Is there anything about us that looks different from everybody else that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? Do we respond to opposition and evil any differently than people who have no connection to Jesus? Are our words different? Are our attitudes different? Are our actions any different? Is there anything about how we are approaching this and our mindset about it? Do we have the mind of Christ? Or are we just simply using the same strategies as everyone else? We ought to be grieving all the deaths here as well and all the pain in our world that evil causes and that even people who are, who are caught in the trap of sin and evil are facing. It ought to grieve us deeply. It ought to say something about our witness. The celebration of Purim is not a celebration of all the deaths. It's a celebration of God's rescue. And you see that in how they go about defending themselves. I find it fascinating that three times in this short text, the the narrator says to us, they defeated those who attacked them, they overcame them, but they did not take plunder. Three times, they did not take plunder. They did not take plunder. There's something in that that says to us, the goal of this was not how much can we grab? How much can we get? The goal of this is simply we have the freedom as slaves to defend ourselves and to bear witness. We have the freedom to, to, to... to uphold the presence of God in this place. And you also see it in the fact that they're generous with other people. They're generous with the poor. If your goal is to just crush people, it doesn't create a spirit of generosity because it doesn't create a spirit of thanksgiving. It's just a spirit of revenge. But if your goal is to simply defend and to represent Christ and to be a presence for Christ in the midst of evil, then when there's rescue, there's gratitude, there's thanksgiving, and that always leads to generosity. Always. I do find it fascinating that the writer says that there are many people all throughout the kingdom who joined in with the Jews because they were afraid of the Jews. I don't know if that's the best evangelism strategy to make people afraid of us. And again, we have to take that into the context of the situation. But as one writer says, there is something about even that description 
that tells us that the Jews are being a light to the Gentiles. They are being people who are in one way or another drawing people to their witness. And that's our calling, to draw people to our witness so they, so they come to Christ. Our ultimate calling is not to defeat evil. Our ultimate calling is to walk with Christ in humility and in righteousness and in love. To continually be praying that the Spirit of Christ would renew our minds so that we see people the way God does. As his dearly loved children who need him. And again, it doesn't mean that we aren't a presence for God in the midst of evil because we are and we need to be. But how are we that presence? What does that look like? I think that's a really hard calling upon us because the reality is it seems that evil is continually growing and ever-present, and making more and more of a mark in this world. And in that context of the, of the evilness in the world, our, most, our natural response is to lash out and to fight in the way that we've always done. But I think there's something in that response that sort of in the back of our minds forgets that Satan and God are not opposite equals. If Satan has any opposite equal, it's angels. It's not God. God alone is the Almighty One. God alone is the creator of all things. God alone is the ruler of all things. And God's kingdom in Christ is secure. And when we know that, we act differently. We think differently. We respond differently. And it doesn't mean that God's always going to do what he does for the Jews here. God doesn't always rescue his people. History is littered with his people who have given their lives and have faced horrendous things because they are his disciples. And it continues even to this day. But that doesn't mean that God's kingdom still isn't secure and we can trust him. And because we know that's true, we can be his image bearers in a world that needs desperately to know who he is. Do we believe that God's kingdom is secure, that he is the king, and that we can trust him? You know, I, I keep thinking about, you know, the, a, a way in which we can see how different it makes us think about life. And I, I keep coming back to 
a, a, a number of, of instances I've had in my life, and one of them that come, came to me this week was, was watching the 1987 NCAA basketball championship game. Those of you who've been around a while know I'm a huge Indiana University basketball fan, and they were playing that year. And as the game was winding down, Indiana was behind by one point. And they have the ball, and they're dribbling and passing around, and the clock is running down. It's under 10 seconds. It's under 5 seconds. And all of a sudden, one of the players puts up a shot from the corner, and it goes right through the net. As I'm watching those seconds tick down and having no idea what the outcome was, the fear and the anxiety was overwhelming. I mean, I was standing, pacing, yelling, you know, doing everything I can to try to cheer them on through the television screen if it's as if that would make any difference to them. But the anxiety of that moment was so intense. But here's the interesting thing. I have a DVD of that game. I've watched that game dozens of times since. I'm not near as anxious now as I was the first time. Because I know how it's going to turn out. We know how it's going to turn out. And sometimes it's hard to see in the moment. And sometimes you feel overwhelmed with the evil presence of the evil one in the world. But we know who wins. And we can live and think and act that it's true. We can trust him. Holy Father, we thank you that we know who you are. We trust you. And we pray that you would so fill us with the mind of Christ, so work in our perspectives and our attitudes that we would bear witness to you through the power of your Spirit and through the grace of Christ. And we ask this and pray this in his name, amen.